a modern-day Reformation, Nehemiah chapter 10. So today we mark the official beginning, the historical beginning of the Protestant Reformation 504 years ago on October 31st, 1517. On the 500th anniversary of the Reformation four years ago, Kevin DeYoung wrote a summary statement for the Gospel Coalition, of which I sh- part of which I share with you now. For centuries, Protestants have instinctively recognized that a providential series of events were, was set in motion when a German professor named Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. We give thanks for Luther, flawed and fallible though he was, for the role he played in igniting a reform movement that caught fire in the cities of the Holy Roman Empire, spread through the rest of Europe, and now reaches to the ends of the earth. Wherever we find scripture alone as the highest and final authority, grace alone as the only hope for resurrecting spiritually dead sinners, faith alone as the only instrument by which we are joined to Christ and justified by the imputation of his righteousness, Christ alone as the only atoning sacrifice for sin, and God alone as the ultimate object of our worship, Wherever we find these truths sung, savored, and celebrated, we have a reason to rejoice in the Reformation. Michael Reeves, a Christian historian on the Reformation, described it as a movement of happiness and freedom. You don't think of the Reformation as dour and dark. It was a movement of happiness. It was a movement of freedom. It was a movement of gospel. Michael Reeves writes, the Reformation... I'm not going to be able to get through the sermon, my goodness. I've been so blessed by the service. The Reformation was a story of one man discovering to his delight that God does not love people because they have sorted themselves out. He loves failures, and his love makes them flourish. And that... And that, at its heart, was what the Reformation was all about. Not moralizing, not self-improvement. It was a discovery of stunningly happy news. News that would transform millions of lives and change the world. The Reformation was a freedom movement, not an excuse to impose new rules or complexity. In fact, Luther said the good news he had found was like the story of a wealthy king representing Jesus, who marries a debt-ridden prostitute, representing all who trust in him. The girl could never make herself a queen, but then the king comes along full of love for her, and on their wedding day, he makes his marriage vow to her, and with that, she is his, and the prostitute becomes a queen. He takes and bears all her debts, and she now shares his boundless wealth and status It is not that she earned it. She didn't become a queen by behaving royally. Indeed, she doesn't know how to behave royally. But when the king made his marriage promise, he changed her status. Despite all her backstreet and backwoods ways, this poor girl is now a queen. And this is why Luther wrote so gleefully the following. Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by Him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, which she may boast of as her own and say, If I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned, and all His is mine and all mine is His. Likewise, 
the greatest failure in this life, if we fail at everything, but we accept Jesus Christ, then we get to share his righteousness and status. What happens is, our, is a happy status swap in the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed and dealt with our guilt and failure, and out of sheer love, he now shares with those who trust him all his righteousness and all his life. As a monk, Luther had confessed he'd come to hate God, doubtful of whether he'd made himself worthy of heaven, and he shook with fear at the thought of how God might judge him on the last day. Yet armed with this new gospel discovery of a righteousness that could be attained that he did not earn, a righteousness that was gift and not work, Luther realized he could face such fears like this. And this is what he said. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is, there I will be also. And so the horrifying doomsday that once occupied Luther's monkish life became for him, quote, the most happy last day he could ever imagine. The gospel had so transformed Luther's life that he was able to look to the future with unshakable hope and assurance that he would enjoy the living God forever. And there would be no better hope for hurting and hopeless people. And so he preached it. And so God blessed it. And so the Reformation spread. The Reformation wasn't a unique thing. It was a back-to-the-Bible preaching of Christ. That's all it was. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. An older Reformation that even preceded the Protestant one. This happened well before that. But it had all the elements that God had always blessed. His word rediscovered. His word powerfully preached. His word bringing conviction and conversion. His word establishing people in righteousness and covenanting them together before him in what we would call the church. And so we've seen this as we've walked through the last few chapters of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8, the rediscovery of the word. Nehemiah 9, last week, the confession of sin. And Nehemiah 10, this week, the capstone, the covenant renewal ceremony, the pledge that they will be the Lord's people. In Nehemiah 10, Nehemiah and the leaders of Jerusalem lead the people in a solemn public ceremony that involves making an oath to God to keep his covenant. You know, that's what we do in the Lord's Supper, right? We pledge ourselves again, you will be our God, we will be your people. And we do it on the basis of Christ's finished work, knowing we are a fickle people and a sinful people. But we just did that this morning. We did the new covenant renewal ceremony. It's called the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to see an old covenant one here. This assembly brought all the people together to sign a written document where they promised to be faithful to the Lord by submitting to his word. And this passage lays out exactly what actions they will take to accomplish their pledge and carry out their covenant oath to God. So we're going to look at four of those actions today, four covenant actions that they make. What did the Reformation look like in their day? And what would the modern-day Reformation look like in our day? If God's people, again, if we as God's people would take these things into our heart and lives, we may spark a reformation 
that our country desperately needs. But it's going to start with us. It's going to start with the Word of God, shaping the people of God, leading us to confession and repentance, leading us to renewal. And these four elements will certainly be a part of it. Just as it was in the Old Covenant, so it must be in the New Covenant. Here's the first one, reforming our lives. Reforming our lives. We don't start with the state. We don't start with the church. We don't start with the family. We start here. Our life. Before your own master, you'll stand and fall. You and me before God. And what will that reforming of our lives look like? It will mean rejecting individualism and embracing ecclesiastical accountability. Now, I know those are a bunch of big words. I'm going to explain them, okay? I'm going to simplify it this way. It means rejecting being a churchless Christian and embracing being a churched Christian. That's what it means. Rejecting being an individual person of God and being part of the covenant family of God. That's exactly what we see in the first 29 verses of this chapter. The bulk of this chapter, as Eric reminded us, is another list of names containing a record of who is participating and making this decision. And in the first 29 verses, we find some of the names of those who signed the covenant. First of all, in verse 1, you've got the national leadership. And then in verses 2 through 13, you've got the spiritual leadership, which was the priests and the Levites. Then in verses 14 to 27, you've got the local leadership there in the, in the city. And then in verses 28 and 29, you've got the rest of the people. So everybody signed it. But this list shows that the people were organized and identifiable, starting with the leadership, going all the way down. The covenant signing distinguished God's people from outsiders. All these people were signing on behalf of others as their representatives. Clearly, the leaders knew who were among God's people. Every Israelite committed to the covenant was involved and was identified and was identified with their leader. This is such a foreign way of thinking in our individualistic American society. One of the reasons that the church in America is so weak and Christians are so weak and we're not having an impact upon people is because we've tried to do Christianity marginalizing the church. You can't have an extensive reformation if Christians aren't committed to the local church if they aren't building their lives into and around the people of God. Because it's there God's glory is displayed. It's there where we see a people of God dwelling together in unity. You can't do that at work by yourself. You can't do that in your family, around your family table, having church. You can't do that in front of a live stream. You can't do it. We have to be with the people of God. In the past, most people's identity was forged by first discovering what their family expected of them, getting feedback about their behavior, and then rearranging their lives in accordance with those expectations. But in our mobile, individualistic, therapeutic, technologically driven culture, we have been more and more disembedded from face-to-face communities, and tech companies have gotten rich on it. And in our increasingly secular society, God and faith no longer serve as a means of identity. Our relationships have thinned out, and our identities are fragile as a result. This list of names in Nehemiah 1 to 29 of chapter 10 displayed who was in and who was out. 
Who were God's people and who weren't? We mark out people through things like covenant membership in order to know who's in and who's out. A modern-day Reformation would involve rejecting individualism and embracing ecclesiastical accountability, embracing the people of God as your people, saying with Ruth, your people are my people. My people will be your people. Not, first of all, even our physical families, as important as that is in our community, but first of all, our spiritual families. I was reminded this weekend from a brother in our church as we were having our men's retreat as I was getting ready to leave, He said, you know what, when I sit in that room with those brothers, I'm getting ready to go see my dad later today, and I love my dad. He's not a Christian. There's my family. There's my family. And that's true. It doesn't mean we don't love our fathers and mothers or our family that aren't. Of course we do. We honor them. We care for them. We meet their needs. But our deepest unity is with the people of God. How do they do this? How did they reject individualism, and embrace this accountability? Well, first of all, they, they, they personally identified with the Lord. Notice in verse 28 and 29 that the, what the people were doing. That these, these physical Israelites and non-Israelites who had abandoned idolatry and joined with them from the surrounding nation chose to follow Yahweh, the God, the Lord, and worship Him alone. They had given up the right to define themselves they have, they have instead begun to be defined by their, their creator and his word alone. We call that conversion. Conversion. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9, Paul described the conversion of the Thessalonian church this way. He said, For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And with the faith of God to go everywhere, get converted and be a part of the church. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The people entering the covenant separated themselves from something to something that is from idolatry to walk in God's ways. That's what holiness involves, fleeing sin, pursuing godliness according to the scriptures. Notice all the expressions of God's word in verse 29. This shows the commitment of the people to obey all of it. Whatever your word says, we will do. And so they publicly identify with the Lord. Secondly, they publicly identify with the Lord's people. They're not closet Christians. This is why this covenant renewal ceremony in Nehemiah 10 was such a public display. Not only does it send a message to all the surrounding peoples, but the public nature of this binding agreement invites accountability not only to God, but to one another. Today, it's common to hear believers refer to their personal relationship with Jesus. While, and I, I agree with that. While everyone's personal relationship with Jesus must be personal, if it's going to be saving... It's never to be private, and I think that's what most people mean by it. They, they should just say it this way, my private relationship with Jesus. Because if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, it goes public. By nature of the personal relationship with Jesus, because Jesus forces you to go public with it. If you sit there and claim you have a personal relationship with Jesus and never got public in baptism, your relationship with Jesus is impersonal. It's private. And we need to make that distinction. It goes public. 
That's what it does. In fact, the only way we know biblically whether or not our relationship with Jesus is really personal is if we go public with it. First in baptism and then in commitment to a local church, which ideally which should be held together and not separated from one another. Another reason we need reformation today. People getting baptized and abandoned. Or it, abandoning themselves or churches allowing it to happen. While many believers today resist the necessity of corporate accountability to the community of faith, it's a necessary part of being, with God's, being a part of God's people as we see here in Nehemiah 10. God wants a visible people. He, was an, he wants an identifiable people. He wants an institutional people. He doesn't just want that, but he doesn't want an isolated, invisible Christian conglomerate claiming individual, personal relationships with Jesus all over the place. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. T.J. Betts, professor and commentator, wrote, We seem to be okay with other believers telling us what is right and wrong as long as they do not cross the line by meddling in our lives and holding us accountable for what is right. The person who says that we're only accountable to God and not to one another in the body of Christ has either neglected the reading of the scriptures or has chosen to ignore them. Surely such an unwillingness to invite and embrace accountability within the community of faith is a major reason for the prevalence of anemic Christians in dying congregations today. Those who are serious about their filling Christ, or their following Christ, will desire the accountability that comes within the body of Christ, which seems to, serves to purify them and conform them more into the image of Christ. Now, we're not talking about spiritual abuse here. We're not talking about pastors and Christians meddling in every single area of your life, cultic in their behavior, trying to control your decisions. That is unhealthy, and that, is, that has happened. I think if you talk to any Christian here or member of this church, by God's grace, we are not going to do that. But at the same time, there is a healthy accountability. There is a healthy view of authority. It's 2 Samuel 23 kind of health, where David says that when, when one rules justly in the fear of God, it brings great blessing on the people. They are liberated and set free. So spiritual authority should give life. Accountability should give life. It should never be a deadening, tightening, gripping, enslaving kind of experience. And we don't ever want to go there. But we do, for the sake of our souls, have to commit ourselves to the local church so that we can be shaped and fashioned and held accountable. Because, brothers and sisters, the reason I'm a Christian and the reason I'm a member of Heritage Baptist Church is not because I want to be a pastor. It's because I want to make it to heaven. I won't make it to heaven. At least I have no biblical reason to think I will make it to heaven if you don't help me. We put our souls in great Danger by doing otherwise. I want to make it to heaven. That's why God put me in the pastorate, because I won't read the Bible on my own. I need the accountability of a local congregation who looks to me and relies upon me to bring God's word. That is a healthy form of accountability in my life. When I think about the damage my sin could do to this congregation, to this community, to the name of Christ, pray for me. I don't want to blow it. And the key is I need you. I need your prayers. 
need your support. I need your love. I need your accountability. And we all need it. Not just us. You need it. You're going to be a Christian in five years? How do you know? You will only know if you are deeply embedded in the life of a church that will hold you accountable. If a modern reformation would sweep across our land, it will result, first of all, in individually people being converted to Christ and then uniting in covenant with his people. Churchless Christianity is no sign of revival. It's a sign of judgment. Rather, when true renewal and true revival is happening, people begin to orient their lives around God, yes, first, but then around God's people. That's what's missing. And to do so visibly and publicly and covenantally. We do it through baptism. We do it through membership. We do it through our ongoing participation in the Lord's Supper. If you are struggling with that, and you want to be there, Crossway sent me 20 copies free of the book Rediscover Church. There's 10 of them right here. During the meal, I want you to pick it up and read it. If you are struggling with, I, I, I want, and you find yourself, okay, I've identified with the Lord. What would it mean to identify with his people? Why is church membership so essential to the body of Christ? Why is that critical? Please take one of those books. You'll have to probably get them fast because they'll go quick. But there's 10 right there, and you can pick them up while you're maybe in line for the, for the meal later on. That's point number one, reforming our lives, and it's going to be coming to Christ and orienting our lives around the local church. And I'm encouraged by that reality because so many of you are there, and so many of you are persuaded of that. And yes, COVID has tested it, but you're more resolved than ever to not let it hinder your gathering with the local church. Praise the Lord for that. We still got some who are not there and may not make it. We're trying, but we all need to try. We all need to help each other keep our covenant. Number two, reforming our family lives. Reforming our family lives. So it starts individually, then it bleeds out into the family. Now, how do we reform our family lives? Well, we reject self-determinism and we embrace spiritual unity. Look at verse 30. Here's a part of their covenant. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take our daughters, take their daughters for our sons. Now, the people who are entering the covenant make a pledge to walk in God's word, and the first area they pledge will impact who they choose to date and who they choose to marry. I was told in college, and it's, it's shown itself to be true in a lot of people's lives, and especially a lot of young people that I sit with. If you're claiming to follow Christ before you're 18 years old, mark it. The test of your spiritual life was, are you going to date God's way? Are you going to honor the Lord in who you choose to get with in a, in a relationship? That will be the test. I've sat with some of you in my office in this very room, and you have passed that test. I know a brother here this morning who, by God's grace, passed that test, and he's doing really well spiritually. And if you will do that, and I know, oh wait, Pastor Mark, I've been married 35 years. I get it. We'll get there. <laughs> I'm in. I'm all in. Love my spouse. We're trying to live a godly marriage. Okay, I got it. But I'm talking to those of us on the front end of this. Kids, teens, young adults. You are going to be relentlessly tested in this area. And you've already experienced it if you're older. If you're in your 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Or perhaps you're on the back end 
and you're looking to be married again, this, is, this will be a test. Will I marry in the Lord? Will I date in the Lord? Now let's be clear, this list is not about preserving some sort of ethnic distinction. It's a faith distinction. It has nothing to do with the color of a person's skin or their background or anything like that. It has to do with who they worship. And if you're a Christian and that girl or that guy worships you, bad deal. You might like it, but it's going to turn to gravel in your mouth. If they worship Jesus more than you and love Jesus more than you, you're on a good track. So it wasn't a racial issue. It's a faith issue. It's a worship issue. They weren't to marry idolaters. Israel always had non-Israelites among them. Ruth, Rahab. The issue was worship. God was concerned about the preservation of truth and the purity of their lives. And I want to talk to you parents. If we're going to have a modern reformation in our homes, we're going to have to deeply care about who our kids marry. They took intermingling with idol worshipers very seriously. They didn't withdraw or refuse to interact, yet they didn't shrug their shoulders and say, ah, kids will be kids. When their children chose friends from among people having no relationship with the Lord. The point I want to make very clear is when morals of a nation are under stress, the family is the first to suffer. This is what Billy Graham said 50 years ago. He wrote, The immutable law of sowing and reaping has held sway. We are now the hapless possessors of moral depravity, and we seek in vain for a cure. The tares of indulgence have overgrown the wheat of moral restraint. Our homes have suffered. When the morals of society are upset, the family is the first to suffer. The family is the most basic unit of our society, and the nation is only as strong as her homes. Parents, what's your primary concern in the lives of your children? Amen. Cultivating their gifts and talents or installing Christ-like character? Serving as their personal chaperone for their identity-creating interests or building them into a community of faith by teaching them to love and serve the church? What is the sun at the center of your household exercising its gravitational pull over all of your activities? Your kids are picking it up and they will imitate it. Nehemiah would tell us that part of a modern-day reformation must include making our families a little church where God's word is read, studied, discussed, sung, prayed, and lived, where spiritual formation, the formation of Christ deeply in our lives and the lives of our children, becomes the engine of our family, not the caboose. This is a Deuteronomy 6 vision. This is a Psalm 78 vision. Psalm 78 says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. Starts with the dads. Starts with the father. Starts in the home. And God gives grace for single moms and others who don't have that. God gives abundant, abundant grace. My single brother or sister, if you desire marriage, are you committed to these kinds of things? Are you committed to being, in the language of 1 Corinthians 6, equally yoked? I often tell our young people that, how important that is. Listen, deep unity is impossible 
if a man or woman don't agree on who God is. Marriage is about Christ and the church. If a man and his wife are not united in their worship of the Lord, how could their marriage reflect the relationship between God and his people that God has intended for Christian marriage to display? Remember, you're looking for someone who loves Jesus. It's more important than age, money, or physical looks. Be driven by the scriptures, not social pressure. Is he a disciple is more important than, does he look like Denzel? Does she love the Holy Bible is more important than, does she look like Halle Berry? Remember, the mandate to be yoked to a believer. Look at their life. Ask their closest friends. Ask them about their walk with Christ, their relationship to the local church. If they won't marry a local church, don't marry them. To my married brothers and sisters, recommit yourself to loving your spouse in a way that magnifies the gospel. Can I ask you to consider this Christmas giving a gift of grace marriage to your spouse and each other this year? They meet quarterly. There are groups in our church. November 6th is the next one this Saturday. Consider that. If you're interested in getting in a grace marriage group and doing that, talk to me, talk to Pastor Thad, talk to Jana, talk to Jeremy. We can help get you plugged into one. They'll start in the new year. And if you're married to an unbeliever, Peter says, as long as you can, hang in there. There will be abundant grace. You may win them to Christ. And we have several in our church who are in that category, and they're so faithfully trying to do that. It's one of the most difficult callings you can possibly have, and the Lord knows you and sees you and loves you, and you will be rewarded greatly on that day for all that you have endured for his name's sake to win your husband to the Lord. I'm not talking about abuse. If you're in an abusive situation, you talk to us. I'm talking about just the difficulty of living with an unconverted person. God gives sustaining grace, and we get to see it in our brothers and sisters who are in that calling. And we hold them up in prayer, and we should seek to encourage them. So that's some reformation in our family lives. Thirdly, reformation in our work lives, reforming our work lives. That is rejecting workaholism and embracing ethical responsibility. Embracing workaholism and embracing ethical responsibility. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. They're planning to keep all the Sabbath requirements, to rest one day in seven and not work, to keep the the, the Sabbath years and to keep the Sabbath seven years, and the year of Jubilee, which would let the slaves go free and pay off the, absorb all the debts. They're agreeing to do all of that. The Sabbath was a big deal in the Mosaic Covenant. It was the covenant sign of the Mosaic administration. It was like a wedding ring. It showed that they belonged to Yahweh, and this was the sign they were to keep to demonstrate it. One of the main reasons that they went into captivity in the first place was because they broke the Sabbath repeatedly. And how long were they in exile? Seventy years. Why were they in exile 70 years? That's no accident. Because God built into their weekly rhythm a call to trust God. 
Verse 31 lays out three parts of their covenant commitment regarding the Sabbath and their work. The weekly Sabbath, the sabbatical year, and the consequent obligation to cancel debts in the year of Jubilee. All these demonstrated an increasing trust in God. It's a huge thing to say, you know what? You don't have to pay it back in the seventh year and to let your slaves go free. It's a huge obligation, especially when you've been dependent upon them and all that. But it it manifests a trust in God. It manifests that God is our provider. God will take care of us. On the weekly Sabbath, they would cease buying from and trading with foreigners. Every seventh year, they would not touch their fields. And then when the seventh year rolled around, all the debts were canceled. Each one of these, for each one of these, great faith in God and his provision was required. But notice how they promised to conduct themselves. They promised to conduct themselves with integrity. The Sabbath not only pointed to their need to trust God, but for us, it's a pointer to Christ. Right? It's not just a reminder of what they were supposed to do in their work lives, which was to create a culture in which people worked hard and rested well. In our society today, we are so driven by work. We find our identity in work. We find our satisfaction in work. Some of us don't even know what to do unless we have something to do. And we're made to work. Work is a good gift of God. Work is a necessary gift. It's a necessary for our health as a human being. It's, health, it's necessary for our obedience to Jesus Christ. It's huge, but it isn't the whole story. It's not the whole story. Work is important, but rest is important. And this is why there's this God-ordained code of work ethics given to the old covenant people of God. They agreed agreed to do business on the up and up and have ethical integrity in the way they behaved. When they put in a day's work, they put in a day's work. And when she has a check, she has to check in at the certain time, she's punctual. And when he's trusted not to take what does not belong to him, he leaves it. When she completes her expense report, she doesn't pad the record. Keith Miller puts it this way, It has never ceased to amaze me that we Christians have developed a kind of selective vision which allows us to be deeply and sincerely involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally pagan in the day-in, day-out guts of our business lives and never realize it. How's your life at work? How are things going at work? Would people say you're reflecting Christ? In the nuts and bolts of living, our work lives matter a lot to God. And so do our rest lives. Because as I just said, the Sabbath ultimately points in the greatest sense to Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow of which Christ is the substance. It's Christ who sets us apart as his people now. And in the new covenant, we fulfill the Sabbath, first of all, by trusting in Christ, by resting in him every day. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you Sabbath. The author of Hebrews says, we who have believed have entered into that rest. The Sabbath points us to our final rest in Christ. However, we must add that resting physically from labor is biblical and practical and wise. Resting from work was an expression of faith in God. And while Sunday is not the mosaic version of the Sabbath, the Sabbath was nevertheless made for man. And there is a Sabbath principle that abides. The Sabbath was also a day for people of God to gather for worship. Therefore, we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which happened in the New Covenant 
on Resurrection Sunday. Every day of the week, reminding us to rest in Christ. Every day of the week, gathering to celebrate Christ. So are you resting in Christ? Are you resting one day in seven from your physical labors? Are you prioritizing the gathering of God's people on the Lord's day? Let's trust God and order our lives and labor in a way that expresses our faith in him in a way that reflects his mercy in a way that prioritizes his glory. So you see how a modern reformation would affect, first of all, our individual lives as we reject individualism, embrace the church. It would affect our families in the way we prioritize spiritual things. And then it would affect our work lives in the way that we demonstrate a work-rest balance. And we're not given over to wholesale laziness, and we're not given over to wholesale workaholism. So fourthly and finally... Reforming our church lives is the last one. I've intentionally tried, and it's interesting how the chapter goes like this, right? Individual, family, work, church. It's kind of the way Paul talks about it in the epistles too. When he comes to make application to the people, he first talks about individual, then he goes to marriage and family, then he goes to work, and then he's talking about the church the whole time. Almost thought he read the Old Testament or something, you know? But in verse 32, we see the beginning of, of them beginning to do this. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give. And then they talk about all the offerings they're committed to make. Verse 34, we the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering. So they agree to provide all that's needed to maintain the temple. But over and over again, I'm not going to reread all these verses for the sake of time, but these verses are all centered around the support of the temple. They are filled with references to various offerings and references to the house of God. It's mentioned nine times in these verses. The house of God, 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 the house of God. If you were counting, I don't know if I got nine in there. But nine times, verse 32, verse 33, verse 34, verse 35, verse 36, 37, 38, 39, concludes with we will not neglect the house of our God. So in verse 32 and 33, we're told of temple dues that the people would pay as they had responsibility to cover the cost of the various items for the worship of the temple. It's not going to be done on Persia's dime anymore. That's the way we kind of try to do church planting. Okay? We uh, will do it on our dime to begin with. But then the goal is to get them self-sustaining and self-supporting and self-propagating. The people giving to support their own work, not getting perpetual help from a mother church because the people won't stand up and do their biblical responsibility. Now, some churches serve in very poor, impoverished areas, and they will need help their entire existence. Praise God for that. We got Macedonian Christians in our own congregation eager to help them, and we want to help them, but that's not the norm. It's not the norm. The norm is to raise up self-sustaining, self-propagating churches that can fund their own ministries and do their own things, and that's what we see here. Nehemiah said, we're not going to just do this all on Persia. I know the wall got built on Persia's back and the temple got built on Persian dime. I mean, I asked for a capital campaign and they gave me some money to do this. Okay, but now we're going to, we're going to, own, we're going to do this. And it, it fosters ownership and discipleship among the people. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if they aren't given money, they're not given their heart. In verse 34 and 35, there's gold that's provided we are uh, we have the, the not, sorry not gold 
the good, the goods that are provided of additional provisions like wood for the altar and first fruits for the crops of the crops. And then verse 36, we have the dedication of the firstborn where the firstborn of every household and all the flocks would belong to the Lord. And then verse 37 and 38, you see the tithe that was given to support the personnel in the temple, such as the Levites who were also called the tithe. So we see two things in these verses. The people financially supported the work of the temple and they financially supported the workers in the temple. Now, this is consistent with all of our new covenant responsibilities as well. We don't have a physical temple to support anymore. We have a physical temple, or spiritual temple. It's called the church. And we spiritually support the physical temple of the church by generously giving to the work of the church. All Christians are called to financially support the work of the local church of which they are a member. Of course, they can support other works and other ministries as the Lord leads but they are first of all to give to their local congregation. And then also supporting the workers in the church, those who are set apart to teach them and shepherd them and lead them in God's ways. And on this day of pastor appreciation that we're getting ready to have, can I just commend you, church? Our budget has grown these last few years in the midst of a pandemic due to your faithful, sacrificial, and consistent giving. You take care of us as your pastors and you fund the work of the ministry through this congregation and you also go above and beyond for a hundred projects that aren't even in our budget that you sacrificially give toward. You are an amazing people to shepherd in terms of your generosity. It's humbling. We thank God for you. We can always excel still more, but we're excelling in missions and in ministry projects and in giving I dream sometimes if each of the 200 members of our congregation increased their giving by a dollar a week in 2022, we would have 10,000 additional dollars in our budget. What church planners could we support? What missionaries could we support with that money? What worthy ministries could we fund? Let's do it. I want to be part of a modern-day reformation. Don't you? If it's going to happen... By God's word and through God's spirit, he will call us to pledge ourselves to membership and accountability in the local church, taking our personal testimonies public in baptism and then covenanting together with his people through church membership. Then in that context, our covenantal commitment will bleed over into our families, our work lives, and our church lives. We will model the importance of accountability, of spiritual formation, of physical rest, of generosity, to this rootless, narcissistic, exhausted, and selfish world that we want to reach. And by God's grace, point a better way, a reformation way, a happiness and freedom way. I want to see a new freedom movement come, and may God grant it in our own day. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for your word. We are thankful for the way in which your word shapes our lives, conforms us to the image of Christ. And would you do that now, even as we come to sing and eat in a moment together and celebrate your goodness, both in the recovery of the gospel and also in the reformation of the church. May you continue that reformation. We need a new reformation in our own day, Lord. 
as we'll see in Nehemiah 13, reformations never last. There's always need for renewal until you come again and make all things new. Not renewable, not renewing, new. How we long for the day when we will no longer need to be renewed. When we will no longer need to be reformed. But the church militant will become the church triumphant. The church that seems to be clothed in rags and battle armor will be raised in glorious white to reign forever with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Keep us faithful until that day. In whose name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.